Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. This week, we're bringing back one of our favorite interviews from the last year, which was Michaeline Duclef. She's the author of Hunt, Gather, Parent. And this is a book that people talk about in our Facebook group and just comes up in conversation so often. I thought it was worth re-upping. You think when you pick up this book that it's going to be another one of these books that's like everybody else does it better than you and you right. need to change what you're doing and do this more and differently and introduce escargot at an earlier age. And it, no. it's, it's not that. This book is very much... Other people are doing it easier than we are because they never got the like crazy idea that they were supposed to complicate it and make it harder than it needs to be. Yeah, that's I mean, we always say that in the best of interviews, we really try to solve problems, not introduce new things. So this isn't, you know, instead of what you're doing, do these 10 other things, which sometimes, you know, we'll get parenting books. And I think this isn't it because it's sort of here's how to put more on your plate. Right, right. And what I really like about this book and this interview is that it's here's how to do less and get the same or better results. That is always what I'm looking for in an interview. I needed the reminder in this. She interviews people in one tribe called the Hadzabes and something she noticed while while working with them is that they gave children many, many fewer instructions per mm. hour. They weren't just all over them. They said very little. So she clocked it as a researcher. She clocked it. The moms were doing an average of three instructions an hour, as in putting your shoes, hurry up, finish your toast, you know, that kind of stuff. Three yes. an hour. Not three a minute, as it turns out. Three an hour. Yeah. Then she clocked herself. She was doing 60 to 100 instructions per hour to her two-year-old. She told us about that in this episode. I decided to do a little research of my own. Let's just say it wasn't pretty. <laughs> and I needed this reminder of like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to be saying less per hour. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to revisit that and do that again. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is a great interview, and we hope you all enjoy it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from the What Fresh Hell podcast. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we are talking to Dr. Michaeline Duclef. She's here to talk to us about her new book, Hunt, Gather, Parent. Michaeline is a correspondent for NPR's Science Desk, and she was part of a Peabody award-winning team that covered the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. She has a doctorate in chemistry from the University of California, Berkeley, and a master's degree in viticulture and enology. Her new book was an instant New York Times bestseller. It's called Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. Michaeline, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. 
My first question is, what is viticulture and enology? I actually looked it up and it wasn't in the dictionary. That's a specialty if it's not in the dictionary. <laughs> You're going to love it. I actually have a degree in winemaking and grape growing. <gasps> wow. wow. That's not what it... Well, vit- yeah, now that I get to the root of it, it makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, that's it. You're also a parent. That wasn't part of your introduction there, but you have a little girl. Is that right? Yes. Rosemary, Rosie. There are some parenting books that are like, hey, not only are you not doing a good job, but somewhere, someone far away is doing a great job. And that person is not you. And (laughs) I think in approaching this book, I might have come in with a little bit of that, like, "Uh, is this going to tell me that everyone's doing it better than me? I want to say this is not that book. What brought you to this particular book? So like I said, I have a little girl, Rosie, and right now she's five. But when this all started, this journey. She was two and a half, three. And she was having a lot of tantrums, you know, like every day, a couple times a day. And my husband and I had no idea how to handle them. In fact, like I would read all these stuff in books and online and I felt like everything I was doing was making it worse. And it got to the point where like I'd pick her up and she would just like slap me across the face like multiple times a week. (laughs) And I would actually duck. I have been there. Yeah. And at the same time, like you said, I'm a global health correspondent for NPR. And we were doing stories. I cover, you know, lots of different parts of the world. And they sent me down to the Yucatan to a small Mayan village to actually do a story about children and paying attention. But when I was down there, I just realized, oh my gosh, there's like a whole bigger story here. The moms there just kind of blew me away with, with their parenting. There was one mom in particular, Maria Tumborges, who she just had this way of interacting with her children that was just calm and confident. You know, there was no arguing, yelling, bickering. I mean, I was shocked. And yet at the same time, the kids were awesome. They were kind and generous with each other, with their parents, respectful and super, super helpful. One morning, Maria's oldest daughter woke up a little late. She was on spring break. She had stayed up watching a shark movie the night before. She gets up, walks in front of me and her mother and goes into the kitchen and starts washing the dishes like completely voluntarily. Like nobody asked her to do it. And um, Maria wasn't even that shocked by it. She was like, well, she's 12 and she knows what needs to be done. So she does it. And so I, here I was like, I couldn't even get my kid to not hit me, you know, and I was, (laughs) and I was watching this mom's like, just, you know, really, I mean, I hate to say it, but make it look kind of easy. And so I left there really wanting to know more not being able to find it in parenting books, and but being able to find it a little bit in academic studies. And But what I realized was like this form of parenting was not unique to the Yucatan by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, it's a super common way of interacting with children that parents have turned to for hundreds, probably thousands of years. And so I really wanted to learn more. And I really wanted to learn how to relate to Rosie in a way that didn't create so much conflict in you know, power struggles. If you're looking at stuff and wondering if it's good advice or if it's going to work for you, how many centuries have people been doing it? That's a pretty good indicator of whether or not it's a good practice. Yeah. And I would add to that, like, if it crops up in like multiple places, right? Like, you know, in the book, like we go to the Arctic, we go to the Tanzanian savannah, to the Yucatan, and you see this, I mean, every place is different, clearly, you know, but you see these common threads. And to me, that's like, whoa, Something must be working right in these very different... All the parents kind of do the same thing. You kind of argue in the book, 
Michaeline, which really stuck with me that it, it is, in fact, the Western style of parenting. You know, we sort of center ourselves like the way we do things with the mom and two kids waving goodbye while the dad walks down the sidewalk to get on the train to the city to go to work. That that's the way it's always been, quote unquote, that that's the model that you're working toward. And we're so sort of blinded by that, that we don't even know what we don't know. And you talk about that the Western style of parenting is is weird parenting. Can you talk about that acronym and what that means? Yeah. So we do think that like our way of doing it is kind of deeply rooted, you know, in tradition. And it's anything but. It's very, very new. And several researchers, anthropologists and psychologists have looked at compared Western style parenting to many different parts of the world. And they, and they come up with this acronym weird because we are actually the exception to the rule. And so weird stands for Western educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So it really is this Western Europe, America, Australia, and Canada, right? Um, and if you look at the way we do, there's about 50 to 60 things that we do that you just don't find anywhere else in the world and you don't find throughout human history. So they're very new, like 100, 200 years old. And they're, I argue in the book that they often, some of the things go against children's natural instincts and the way that they've kind of been designed to relate to their parents. And I think that that's one of the things that causes so much exhaustion, number one, but also so much conflict because we are kind of constantly fighting children's natural instincts. I think that's right. And I think it is important that it's a little bit recent because we talk also about like both of our grandparents did not parent the same way we do. And can you give us a couple of like really tangible examples that people would go like, aha, yes, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad you bring up grandparents because my grandfather did not parent me this way. My mom kind of did, you know, and I see it in my mom, but not my grandfather. So one of the huge things is this constant stream of praise. And you could even actually expand it out to just constant stream of instruction, including praise. Like we, I actually recorded myself a bunch of times first by accident. And then I started doing it intentionally just to actually listen to how much verbal instructions I'm giving Rosie. And, you know, it is a constant like, good job. Oh my gosh, you're so amazing. And like, oh, that's great. And then there's also the don't do this, you know, <laughs> don't wave that stick around. Don't put your fingers in your mouth. Come over here. You know, and this is super weird. Like you just, my grandfather did not treat me this way. <laughs> Capital W. <laughs> yes. You know, and it is, especially for the little ones, I think just stressful, right? I mean, you, I wouldn't want to be told what to do all the time or even praised all the time. And, and I remember being with my grandfather and being like, whoa, this is really relaxing because he's just not telling me what to do all the time. So that is a huge thing that's crazy. The other thing that we do is that we think we need to keep children busy, that we need to manage their time, right? That we couldn't just go about our lives and our work and let children kind of hang around or tag along and let them kind of figure out what to do. So we are like schedule so many activities. We, you know, give them constant entertainment. And this, again, is just, it's unheard of in basically the rest of the world. Michaeline, what stood with me as I was looking at some of the ways that I have been a weird parent along the way is that I did think that that was my assignment. Like you talk about the idea that we have that as moms, we're supposed to narrate to teach our children language. We're supposed to be like, oh, and what's this? And what's this washcloth? And are we going to wash your arm with it? And am I now washing your, you know, your hand with it? And, and this sort of constant stream of teaching, teaching, teachable moments. What can you be learning right now? Was sort of the way I was supposed to be doing things. But that was, yeah, that was optional all along. <laughs> I thought that was kind of mind blowing. I mean, 
Yeah, I thought that that's what really good parents do. I mean, that's what my pediatrician, you know, told me to do. You know, I was, I think this all comes from like incredibly good intentions, right? Like we want the best. We want kids to learn and, you know, we want them to achieve, of course. And, but at the same time, it's exhausting, right? Like that form of parenting, at least for me, is completely exhausting. I can't keep it up for more than an hour a day. And, you know, especially during this pandemic, like I couldn't keep it up for 12 hours. <laughs> and then, you know, and in the end, I think it's questionable how much good it's doing. And for some kids, I think it's doing them a disservice. You know, kids learn language without us having to narrate everything and words are stimulating. And, you know, it can be stressful for little ones. And like I said, this is not anywhere else. And yet, you know, all Mayan kids learn to speak Spanish and Mayan, right? And, you know, the Tanzanian kids learn to speak the Hadzabe and Swahili and English, you know. So I think we can just let go of a lot of, of what we think is kind of the right way to do it and, and start to look more at the relationship. So is this stressful for me? Is this stressful for the kid? Is this causing conflict? You know? A lot of the moms just kept saying, look to the relationship. Is it improving the relationship? And I think that I want to touch a little bit more on, is that stressful for me when we come back? Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby's skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is... Toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. This is what I was kind of trying to say about the book earlier. It's not just that like, oh, these other people are doing it better and they've unlocked a secret. It's that 
this is a much less stressful version of parenting. And I feel like if people take anything away from this, that's the gift here, which is that like you're going 10 miles out of your way to do something that is naturally already occurring and you can stop doing that. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yes, you summed it up very well. In fact, I think there could be doing some disservice too, right? Right. Even more so. That's right. It's not just that you're not helping. It's that you might be really making things a little worse. Yeah, right. And I mean, kids are really resilient and we we get, we really underestimate their abilities to bounce back and, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do. But yeah, I think that a lot of kids need quiet. You know, Rosie, my little girl, absolutely needs moments where no one is talking, right? There's no screen on. There's no me and her father saying things to her, just quiet. And once I started giving her that, like in the car, instead of narrating everything, because God, I was talking all the time to her. Man, that's such a good one. Yeah. You know, her behavior improved. Like she started calming down. And I think she was just overstimulated by all of the words. You may have a kid who likes to play quietly in his room when other people are over. It's okay. They'll figure it out, you know? Yeah. Some kids need a lot of quiet. You know, she would be like playing in the living room while I was cooking dinner or something. And I would actually have to like actively stop myself from going over there and telling her something, right? Like, oh, why don't you do this with the book? Or why don't you color this? And like, and then I started realizing like, why am I like inserting myself? Like every time I insert myself, I just give an opportunity for resistance and conflict. And so I just started having much more confidence in her ability to figure things out. You know, many cultures, they will actually, they just think that kids learn things on their own through exploration, right? And there's actually a lot of studies that say that if you interfere with a child when they're trying to like do a task, like color something or, you know, do something in the kitchen, that you will actually demotivate them. And the time they spend and the focus they spend on it will go down. So I think we really underestimate their ability to learn on their own. They need us nearby. They want to be near us and in our worlds, but they need us to step back and let them do things. Can we talk about what you learned from the Hadzabe in Tanzania to that specifically about the autonomy that they give their kids? So this is so huge. So there's actually a recent study that came out looking at another hunter-gatherer group in the Congo Basin where a researcher actually measured how many times uh, the parents or an adult or a caretaker or anybody gave an instruction to a child. You know, these are parents that are with their children all day, right? Um, Besides school. And it was incredible to me. It was like on average of three commands per hour. And actually the little ones got more commands than the older ones because they thought that as kids grow up, you know, they need, they should already know what to do. And almost all these commands were requests to help and like help were like, Oh, hold this cup or go get the water. So including kids in activities that teach cooperation and working together. But otherwise the kids are allowed to make their own decisions and move around and do what they need to do as long as they're respecting others and being helpful. So I did the same experiment with myself where I like recorded myself and counted like how many commands and I was clocking in at like 60 to a hundred an hour. It was wow. incredible because it was, I didn't even realize I was doing it. Right. It was just like, you know, don't stand there or come over here or get your shoes, you know, and it was just kind of this constant stream. And so one of the things I started doing with Rosie was actually restricting myself to three commands an hour. 
Wow. <laughs> and she's, wait, remind us how old she is. She's five. And five. I started doing this when she was four. Mm. And I was doing it at not easy times. So like things, moments of conflict, like bedtime and morning routine. And I would use up the three commands in like 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> we have to sit but, silently for the next 50 minutes. But what happened when you stopped giving her the 60 commands? Oh my gosh, our relationship improved enormously. Like I actually started to enjoy being with her. Like we, you know, started to get along. There was a kind of this peaceful coexistence that happened. But, but I have to also say that I could use nonverbal commands. So these are huge around the world. So like a look, I mean, the look is so powerful. Like you don't have to say something to a child. They already know what's right. They just, you know, you just have to remind them what's right. And all you need is like one good look at them with, you know, with everything you want to say or scream at them, just put it into your face. And it's so powerful. And they can't uh, argue with your yeah. face. They can try, but it won't work, right? Because you're not talking. It stops you from getting into something that happens a lot with kids, especially that age, is like it draws you into a negotiation or it draws you into conflict yeah. that's right. Like you don't really... The less you engage, the less room there is for that. Yeah. And, you know, engaging with them in negotiation and in conflict is only teaching them to negotiate with you. Right. I mean, that is just all you're telling them is like, oh, I'm up for negotiation. I'm somebody you can negotiate with. One of the Mayan anthropologists told me that, you know, the Mayan parents just don't negotiate. And I never saw one negotiation, actually, in the whole time I was researching this book. And so kids learn really quickly that mom doesn't negotiate. So I'm not even going to try. <laughs> and I have to say it works. It takes a little bit of time. You know, Rosie was four when I really decided I'm not going to negotiate. I'm not going to argue. Sometimes I'll just tap her on the shoulder and be like, I'm not going to argue with you and just walk away. But she kind of gets it. She negotiates a lot more with her father. <laughs> <laughs> He's got to read the book. He's got to read it. You know, he secretly read it. <laughs> One day he said something to her and I looked at him and I was like, where did you learn that? That was really fantastic. And he was like, I read this, the Hadzabe section. <laughs> so yeah, no negotiations, no arguing. Can we pivot to the Mayans? Because what they do, right? When you're, so say you don't give your daughter 18 commands to put her shoes on. You just point to the shoes and then she puts on her shoes. And then the weird Western way would be like, look at you putting on your shoes all by yourself, right? <laughs> like we'd give them a ticker tape parade the whole way out to the car because they put on their own <laughs> shoes. <laughs> Fanfare. And the Mayans kind of leave that out. Am I explaining that correctly? Yeah, there's very, very little praise. I mean, really anywhere else except here is there very, very little praise. And yet these kids are, I think, have everything that we think praise is doing and some of the things that praise is accidentally doing, they don't have. Um, yeah. So I think the my parents, you know, maybe they'll give the child, if the child does something really well, they'll give the child like a good look, you know, a smile or nod. One of the moms would do that to me when she finally felt like I was understanding her. Um, <laughs> she was praising you in her own way. Yeah, she was. She I think was. she's got it. Look at you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I was a little dense to many of the parents, but they do something else that I think has been critical to my relationship with Rosie. And that's that they really respect and acknowledge a child's contribution to the family. So if a child runs over and starts to want to help, even if the child can't do the task or the task is even a, like outside the child's like, you know, it's too dangerous. The Maya parents will still allow the child some way of helping and contributing to that task. And they can do that by 
giving the child a really small subtask of what they're doing. So if they're cooking, you know, they can say, hold this plate or, you know, watch me when I do this. I'll tell them to watch. And then if the child does something, they don't just change it and, you know, say, no, that's not right. We do it like this. They will accept the contribution. Maybe they'll fix it a little bit or, you know, guide the child a little bit, but it's much, much more hands-off. They never jump in and like grab the child's hand and say, this is how we do it. And then start giving a big lecture. So they really respect the child's abilities to learn and eventually contribute. And to me, this has been huge because I realized that I was like just completely thinking Rosie was an incompetent being in the kitchen and at home and that I had to either she was going to slow me down and make a big mess or I had to explicitly teach her everything that she was doing. And this was causing huge amounts of tension and arguments. And once I kind of stepped back and like said, okay, yeah, come help me, you know, here, wipe this plate off or, you know, put this plate away, you know, join me in accepting what she's doing, even if it wasn't perfect, our relationship got so much better. I want to speak up for a moment on behalf of the Western parents, and we're going to take a break, and I'm going to speak up on behalf of ourselves. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health, and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different Different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. In my grandparents' generation, my grandmother was one of 13 kids at the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. The role of children was so different. The role of children was like, you better figure this out quick because we need your hands to till this earth and put out these crops. Definitely. 
we have a very different relationship with our kid, which is like, you're kind of in the way of what I'm trying to do, which is my job that doesn't involve you. Our agriculture and social system has profoundly changed in the last hundred years. Absolutely. The problem is, though, the kids haven't really changed. (laughs) Right. So I'm not saying like, so this doesn't count for you. It's just like we're not inventing something. We're kind of getting back to something we've lost for a pretty specific reason. Yeah. We're getting our kids these plastic lawnmowers, right? And these like little tykes, you know, knives when they should just have, yeah, like pretend things. Their subtasks should be actual. Yeah. Is what the Maya people would say, right? I mean, I think kids know the difference, right? The kid wants the real thing. They know that it's fake, right? And how can you contribute with something fake? I really genuinely believe, and there's a lot of data to show this, that little young children have a very strong desire to help and contribute and cooperate with people that love them. And when they don't, they get upset about it. And what happens is over time, that desire is eroded. And that is very specific to the weird West is that by the time kids are seven, eight, they no longer want to help. But in fact, in many, many cultures, it's not true. That desire continues and they become much more competent in helping and so, yeah, I think that that's one of the things we've lost is this ability to nurture helpfulness in kids instead of like eroding it. We wait. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. That idea of like, we've just lost something that is natural. This is not like we're layering something on top. Yeah. And I think the same is true when you talk about emotional intelligence. So can you talk a little bit about Inuit emotional intelligence and that aspect? Yeah, this was such a big shift in my mind. So one of the things that really stood out is this idea. So first of all, that we kind of underestimate children's physical abilities, which is kind of getting at this idea of like not letting them help, not realizing how quickly they can learn to do something like cook even, but we overestimate their emotional abilities and their emotional intelligence. And so we think that like little 18 month olds and two year olds can control their anger, which is something that like I couldn't do even even at like 40 sometimes, you know, it's a really hard thing to do. Same. (laughs) I am just learning it really, to be honest, if I can learn at 44, anyone can learn it. But I think what the parents told me over and over again is that they expect children to have tantrums, to hit you, to be disrespectful because children are these illogical, irrational beings. And they're not, it is your job as a parent to teach them that, to teach them how to settle themselves down, to not hit you. And you do that by showing them that, not by telling them that, which is what I was trying to do, right? Like, would you settle down? Would you stop? What can I do? How can I help you? But in fact, what I needed to do with Rosie was just be calm myself and not meet her emotional outbursts with my own high energy and emotional outbursts, so to speak. Oh, this is a hard one. This is a real hard one. It is very hard. So when she's... So would an Inuit kid not get to the point where they're striking their parent across the face anyway? Or does the Inuit parent just react differently? The little ones, like, so when we were with this wonderful family, Sally was a grandmother there. She had a little 18-month-old grandchild, a little boy. And he was, I mean, he was like rosy, right? Like super high energy and willful and, you know, exploratory. And and I think he was pulling the dog's tail, a little terrier's tail. And she picked him up and said, you know, we don't do this. And he scratched her face to the point where it was like bleeding. And I saw her like, you know, cringe. And she kind of peeled his fingers off her face and said in like the calmest voice, like, 
you don't understand that this hurts me, which first of all, is crazy. Like, whoa, you know, that she gets that the kid is, is not personal. Right. And then she said, you know, we don't do this. We don't treat each other like this. And she kind of flipped him over and did this, like pat him on the butt a little bit gently and then kind of flew him around like an airplane. And then that was it. <laughs> wow. And what I realized from watching her, which was she and this other mom, Elizabeth, just taught me so much. What they taught me is that when Rosie was upset, I needed to be there for her, but I needed to bring the energy way, way down and almost treat her like this little tiny precious butterfly on my shoulder and just be super calm, super gentle and let her have that emotion, like let her be angry, but show her how to find the calmness in herself. Okay, but did it work? So, you know, I think it took her a while to really be convinced that I wasn't going to yell at her, (laughs) you know, and that I was actually on her team and really was just going to stay calm. You know, to be honest, I think it took about a couple of weeks for her to start calming down. And the tantrums after like a month went from like every day to like, you know, once a week. And then after a month or two, it was like once a month. I mean, it really went fast once I convinced her that this was a different approach and this was a different, that I wasn't going to argue with her and just make everything, everything worse. This is the Achilles heel of all parenting advice, which is like you try it three times and you're like, nope, that didn't work. All right, moving on. I guess I'll go, you know. Because they'll be like, no, 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 no. I push the jack in the box and then the jack in the box pops up and then the jack in the box doesn't pop up. You don't walk away. You crank it faster. That's right. The kid's still like, I know that jack in the box is in there. I'm not going to stop looking. I'm not going to stop cranking. Exactly. (laughs) But I think this is actually something that's weird that we think these things are so fast. And like, you know, we put up a chart on the wall, Ah. a chore chart and kids start doing chores, right? Like, no, like these things are skills, right? Learning to calm yourself down is a skill and it takes practice and time and modeling, right? And it may be for some kids, something that they work on for a lot of their lives. I mean, the kids, people also have very different set points. Like exactly. If you have a kid who doesn't have tantrums, have another kid. That'll probably solve that for you. (laughs) Exactly. You know, and the moms and dads told me this over and over again. I would say, well, what age does this happen? And when does she stop having a tantrum? And they were like, well, it just depends on the kid. Like this idea of like five-year-old, six-year-old developmental milestones. Again, weird. Ah. (laughs) You know, we didn't have these like a hundred years ago. Kids were just kids. And, you know, some were more pains in the butts than others. (laughs) Which is what a lot of parents told me. That is eternal. (laughs) Can you tell us about the four pillars of team parenting? Yeah, it was something I just came up with one day when I was riding my bike, actually. And I was like trying to figure out how to remember this and what these common threads were across the world. And so T is for together. And it's this is about teaching children how to work together as a team and cooperate. So this is one of the reasons why... I saw so much, you know, such calmness and so little resistance with these families is because the parents have taught the children to work together with them as a team and to cooperate. And so this involves actually having the child work with you, right? So if you're in the kitchen, you know, having them, giving them little subtasks to do, you know, instead of telling them to go clean up their room, you say, let's all clean up together. Let's all make our beds together. Things are done together. And I have to say, this does not have to be and is often not the mom and the dad. This is anybody that loves the child and is taking care of the child, you know, a neighbor, a grandparent, a nanny, another child, another sibling. I mean, in fact, in many places in the world, the mom and the dad play a much less role than they do here. But it's just this idea that kids are hardwired to work together. This was what makes us humans, homo sapiens, is that we love to cooperate and we want to learn how to do that. And so when we constantly push kids to be independent and do things by themselves, 
we create a lot of conflict. So E is encourage versus force. So the book gives you like a whole suite of tools to try to encourage the proper behavior over time. It takes time. It's not instantaneous. Instead of forcing children, forcing creates conflict, but it also demotivates children, right? You don't like to be forced into doing something. You like to feel like you have a choice and that you figured it out yourself. A is autonomy, which we've talked about, but this is different than independent. You know, American parents are so much about independence and, and yet we give our children very little independence. It's one of the big paradoxes of American parents. <laughs> We're all about independence. You know? <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but autonomy is making your own decisions from moment to moment, but always kind of thinking about the group. So is there a way that I can help somebody? You know, am I sharing? Am I being kind? So it's being independent with this constant kind of connection to others. And I think this is what's missing a lot and why we end up, you know, in, with so much tension in the home is because we haven't really taught each other how to work together and think of each other. And then finally, M gets is minimal interference, which we've talked a lot about. But instead of this knee-jerk reaction being to tell the child what to do and fix and micromanage, we step back and we pay attention to what they're doing. And then we only help or say anything, interfere when they really need it. And then it's a very gentle interference. That's such a cornerstone that I took away from this, that idea of like, let's wait for a minute. We don't have to be involved with every second. It's just an interesting perspective shift. Yeah. And I think kids will surprise you. I mean, Rosie surprises me a lot when, you know, I want to jump in. And then, you know, I think I heard on a podcast once that like the magic happens, you know, right after we want to interfere, mm. right? That mm. the kid learns to grow and because that's when they're kind of pushing their own boundaries. And again, they're going to push back too. We say all the time, there's something on the other side of boredom. You know, it's not that they're suddenly going to be like, oh, thank you, mother, for this wonderful opportunity to finally be myself. Like, that's not the moment you're looking for. You're looking to find a practice that helps facilitate this stuff. Yeah. And you can do less, right? I mean, you can step back and take yeah. a break. Sounds good. <laughs> you know, read a book, you know. During the pandemic, we came up with this idea of never interrupt a happy quarantined person. Yes. And I, I think that's what it is. It's never interrupt a happy child, right? Never say to the baby like, oh, look at this. Like, let them, you know, look at the lint on the rug for as long as they want to. Absolutely. One of the moms in the Arctic kept saying, just leave her alone. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like she's not grumpy. Why are you bothering her? Absolutely. So we've been talking to Michaeline Duclef. Her book is called Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans. Michaeline, tell us about what you're working on now and where we can find you on the internet. So I'm back at my job at NPR covering mostly COVID, <laughs> but I'm hoping to do more parenting stories. And I'm also looking to like open up our view of, you know, what American parenting is because we have so many different voices in our country, right? And I think it would be great to value those and hear more from those. And so if anybody wants to email me and wants me to do a story about, you know, their parenting advice that kind of goes against the weird way, I would love to hear from them. It's um, mduclef at npr.org. I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Michaeline, this book is fascinating. I'm so glad we got to talk to you today. This is just our style, this book. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real pleasure. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them 
can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play. And we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips.